Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark 15. Mark 15. This will be the last sermon I preach in Mark, as we will be bringing the Gospel of Mark to an end here this morning. I intentionally chose songs this morning that kind of captured the whole life of Jesus, because we basically sought to cover the whole life of Jesus here in Mark's Gospel. So in Mark 15, we're going to be reading or looking at uh, verse 40 all the way to chapter 16, verse 8. So I'm just going to say this at the beginning. We're not going past verse 8 because if you'll see in your Bibles, depending on what Bible you have, you'll see that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, 19, or 9 to 20. So most scholars think that this was actually added in um, to the manuscript itself. So we're going to be ending the Gospel Mark at verse 8 of chapter 16. Everything after that is still true. Everything that's said there is still true. We just don't think it was a part of the original manuscript of the Gospel of Mark. Just want you to be aware of that. So it's not like there's anything heretical or anything like that uh, in verses 9 to 20. So... Um, Mark 15, I'm going to start in verse 40, and we'll read to verse 8 of chapter 16. So Mark 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, the, young, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come... Since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very on, very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will ro- roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let me pray. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would illumine our minds, 
give us understanding. But also, Lord, give us understanding that would create in us delight, wonder, and amazement of this glorious truth that our Savior who was dead rose from the dead. We know this story, and sometimes we can forget just how glorious this moment is. And so please, Lord, help us to marvel. Help us to worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm guessing that most of us have had a moment in life where we were so confident about something, so sure that something good would happen, that we placed all our chips on that something, so to speak. We had so much anticipation and hope over whatever that thing was. You hoped that she would say yes. She said no. And then out of the left field, that hope, that confidence, anticipation, was completely shattered. You ever had that moment? I remember having that experience on May 13th, 2013. This is going to bring up old wounds. Game 7, Maple Leafs versus the Boston Bruins. Leafs were winning 4-1 at the near midway point of the third period. Just 10 minutes left. I remember feeling such incredible excitement and hope that finally the Leafs were going to knock off the Boston Bruins and move to the next round. It was a sure thing. It seemed inevitable. And yet, in less than 30 minutes, all the excitement and hope and confidence I felt was completely shattered. I remember feeling completely stunned and heartbroken. I was only 24 years old. I was still a kid, okay? Now that feeling, if you know what I mean, can't remotely come close to what the disciples of Jesus were feeling when Jesus was crucified and dead. There was so much hope and anticipation on the part of the disciples. They really did believe that he was the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, the one who would overcome evil, the one who would free them from the tyranny of Rome, establish his kingdom. They really did believe this and really had this sure hope that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet within a day, all that excitement, anticipation, and hope was shattered. The one they saw raise the dead, heal the blind, cause the lame to walk, have the power to cast out demons, was now crucified to a cross and was dead. Can you imagine the internal tor turmoil and sorrow the apostles and the other disciples of Jesus had felt? Shattering, life-altering sorrow and despair. And it's that background that we need to have in the back of our heads to understand what we are looking at here this morning as we approach this portion of Scripture and the characters that we see here. See, we're told at Jesus' crucifixion in verses 40 to 41, as he dies, Mark tells us that there were some women who were watching at a distance. And what we observe 
is that these women were women of devotion to Jesus. Women of devotion. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. We're introduced to three women who followed Jesus to his crucifixion and saw his death. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. Now, Mary Magdalene, of course, is definitely the most known female disciple of Jesus in the Gospels. She was the one who Jesus delivered from seven demons. We're not totally sure who Mary, the mother of James the Younger, was. There is speculation, but we don't know for sure. What's clear is that she was a disciple of Jesus. And then Salome was most likely the wife of Zebedee, and the mother of the disciples, James and John. Now remember, she's the one in Matthew's gospel who asks that Jesus allow for her two sons to sit on his right hand and on his left side in the kingdom. And now she's looking at the corpse of Jesus on the cross with two criminals on his right hand and on his left hand. But here's what I want us to see. Mark wants us to see that these women were devoted to Jesus. They were followers of him. As he says in verse 41, they followed him and ministered to him. And we're told there were also many other women. But why does Mark mention the women here? I mean, it seems rather odd, to be honest. Mark mentions these women, I think, because of the next decisive moment in the narrative. These women are the key players in what happens next. They will become central to the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. I find it so fascinating that it's only women that are mentioned who see the whole process of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. These women were at Jesus' crucifixion unlike the majority of the apostles. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was buried, right? Verse 47 makes this clear. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So not only did they follow him to his crucifixion, but they followed Joseph to his burial where he buried Jesus. And then, of course, these women are the first to discover the empty tomb and are the first to encounter the resurrected Jesus though Mark's account doesn't reveal their first encounter with Jesus. So it's only women who saw the whole process, his death, burial, and resurrection. It was these women who were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, why is any of this important? Why did God intend that these women would be given such an honor? Well, for one... The testimony of these women actually strengthens the credibility of the resurrection of Jesus. In the ancient world, a woman's testimony was not remotely considered as reliable as a man's testimony. Their testimony would have been judged suspect and unacceptable to the culture. Which means, 
If you were to fabricate a story like the resurrection of Jesus, you would not use women as the first witnesses of that story. See, I think God in his wise providence chose women to be the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection to demonstrate that no one was attempting to fabricate the resurrection of Jesus. This is not mythology, but is in fact history. It's telling us of something that happened in human history that was universal and has eternal implications for the whole human race. God, in his wisdom, actually strengthens the credibility of the resurrection by having, having women be the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Listen to how Wynandy puts it. That they are women, and simple women at that, will ultimately give the utmost credence to their testimony. Their testimony would have been judged suspect and unacceptable within their culture. Yet precisely because they are women, no one would concoct or fabricate a story about Jesus' resurrection wherein women would be its first witnesses. Then listen to this. Their great testimonial weakness, womanhood, becomes their greatest testimonial strength. You know what that reminds me of? Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 28. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You see, the credibility of the resurrection of Jesus rests upon the shoulders of these women. God has providentially intended this. The other reason I believe God providentially chose that these women would be the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus was to simply honor them for their devotion to Jesus. It was not the apostles who followed Jesus to his crucifixion. It wasn't the apostles who sought to find out where he was buried. It wasn't the apostles who attended intended to anoint Jesus' body with spices. It was these women of faith and devotion. They loved Jesus. As we're told in verse 41, they ministered to him as they followed him. And because of their devotion, their love for Jesus and their commitment to him, God gave them the honor to be the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. Listen to how Calvin puts it. Praise is bestowed on the women alone who accompanied Christ till death because their extraordinary attachment to their master was the more strikingly displayed when the men fled trembling. For they must have been endowed with extraordinary strength of attachment since though they could render him no service, they did not cease to treat him with reverence even when exposed to the lowest disgrace. You know, isn't it interesting that right before the passion narrative begins with Judas's betrayal, you have this incredible act of devotion and love on the part of a woman who anoints Jesus's head and feet with her expensive ointment. Jesus describes it as a beautiful thing. He defines her act as anointing his body beforehand for burial. 
And at the end, just before Jesus' resurrection, you have these women go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices. Another act of incredible devotion. And in between these two acts, you have the apostles abandoning him. I want to say this to the ladies of Royal York Baptist Church. You have a major role and major significance within the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You are co-heirs with Christ and your fellow brothers. And you are just as valuable and just as important as citizens in the kingdom of God as any man is. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you like any of your Christian brothers do. So use your gifts and abilities for the kingdom of God and from a pure love towards Jesus and his church. You see, I think the church in North America has made an idol out of pastors and preachers, which has led us to neglect or downplay the significance of other gifts and ministry within the life of Christ's covenant people. Sisters in the Lord, I think you should aspire to be described the same way Tabitha was described. And I think the brothers here should desire to be described this way. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Serve and love Jesus like the women in this story served and loved Jesus. Here we see women of devotion. The second thing we see in this passage is, is not just devoted women, but also an unlikely follower of Jesus. We see that in verse 42, an unlikely follower of Jesus. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. It was the day of preparation, which, as we're told, was the day before the Sabbath. The Jews already had an agreement with Pilate that the bodies of the crucified were to be taken down and buried before 6 p.m. when the Sabbath began. This would have been an agreement that they had even before Jesus' trial. Now this means that Jesus' corpse would have been taken down and just tossed into a common criminal's grave. And this is where we are introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the religious council who was, as Mark says, looking for the kingdom of God. John actually tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. But it's here in this moment where his love for Jesus will no longer be kept secret. The very thought of Jesus' body being thrown into a common criminal's grave overwhelmed him. And that's why we're told he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, why was this a courageous act on the part of Joseph? 
Well, because he was secretly following Jesus and he was a part of the religious Sanhedrin. You could say he was a part of the religious elite. Joseph ran the risk of being expelled from the Sanhedrin. He ran the risk of being scorned by the Jews. But after he observes the suffering and death of Jesus, none of that matters anymore. He comes out of the closet, so to speak, and courageously goes to Pilate to ask for his body so that Jesus can have a proper burial. And Pilate grants his request. You see, Joseph was probably thinking, I acted too late, but the least I could do is give him a proper burial, one that befits a godly man. See, here's what we have to realize. Joseph was probably there at the trial of Jesus in Caiaphas's court. And most likely, he remained silent because of fear. What changed in him? I think what changed in him was seeing the suffering of Jesus upon that cross. It elevated his faith and deepened his love and commitment to Jesus, and it led him to act, even if it meant his own reputation and status would be marred. But what's important to understand is that Joseph was not acting from a place of hope. There was no anticipation of Jesus rising from the dead in Joseph's mind. He did not take Jesus' body with the hope that he would rise. He simply requested the body of Jesus because of his sincere love and devotion to a man who in his mind was now forever dead. You see, the spirit in which Jesus embraced the horrors of the cross moved Joseph to become not just a secret disciple, but a courageous disciple. And you know what this tells me? is that we are all at different places when it comes to our walk with the Lord. And therefore, we ought to be patient with one another, realizing that God's sanctifying work in our lives happens according to His time. We need to restrain our judgments of one another and realize that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of people according to His wisdom and timing. If you knew me at 18, you would never have suggested, I want Peter to be my pastor. Imagine if you knew Joseph before this moment, and you knew he was secretly following Jesus because of fear. What would your response be? Would you condemn him as a false convert? Would you consider him a coward and make that known to him? Or would you pray for him that God might stir his heart to become a man of courage for the sake of Jesus? Joseph was was an unlikely follower, but he risked much in this moment in which he requested from Pilate the body of Christ. He was an unlikely follower, but he became a courageous follower of Jesus. The third thing we need to see from this passage, which is obvious, but nevertheless is important, is Jesus was dead and buried. Here lays a dead Messiah. 
Mark goes to great lengths to make it very clear that Jesus was actually dead. In fact, he confirms that it wasn't just the disciples of Jesus who believed Jesus to be dead, but it was the Roman soldiers and Pilate. When Joseph goes to Pilate to make his request for the body of Jesus, we're told in verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. You see here that Jesus is being dead is repeated several times to confirm that Jesus was in fact dead. Not only that, Mark makes it clear that Joseph really did wrap Jesus in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb and shut the tomb with a large stone. The long-awaited Messiah was dead and buried, as both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed affirm. But it's important that we stop and reflect on this moment. See, because we Christians know how the story ends, we too easily have a tendency to jump from Good Friday, Christ's crucifixion, to Easter Sunday, Christ's resurrection, forgetting Holy Saturday, Christ's dead body lying in a tomb. Remember this. None of the apostles, none of the disciples of Jesus, the women included and Joseph included, had any anticipation of Jesus rising from the dead. They were completely in the dark. Which means this Saturday, the day Jesus lay in the ground, would have been the most devastating day of their lives. I mentioned this in the beginning. Their hope would have been utterly crushed. They were so confident that Jesus was the Messiah, they saw his miracles and power, but now he's dead. I mean, imagine the guilt and shame the apostles were feeling on Saturday. The last memory they have with Jesus is each of them abandoning Jesus when he needed them most. Imagine what Peter was feeling, knowing that he denied Jesus three times. That's the last memory he has with Jesus. Imagine what Joseph was feeling, contemplating why he didn't speak up when Jesus was being falsely accused. Imagine the devastation and despair that Mary Magdalene was feeling, Jesus had the power to cast out seven demons from her, but now he's dead and residing in the belly of the earth. This would have been the darkest day of their lives. The one who they thought was the Messiah, the Savior, the King of Israel, was dead. This was in their minds a completely hopeless situation. Their hopes and dreams were crushed. Their Messiah was dead. Where now would they turn? To whom would they turn? They believed Jesus had the words of eternal life. And yet now, he's in a tomb. This was a hopeless Saturday. But as we know, the story does not end in hopelessness or death. It ends in resurrection life. 
Sunday tells us that there is a resurrected Messiah. Verse 1 of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very on, very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll, roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark includes in the narrative the line, when the sun had risen. For creation follows the, ryth the rhythm of its resurrected creator. It's not a coincidence that Jesus rose at dawn and not dusk. As the sun rises and the darkness dissipates, so the sun will rise in the, and the darkness will be no more. Now we're told these women that the day after the Sabbath, which would have been the worst, the worst Sabbath of their lives, the day after the Sabbath, which would have been the Sunday, they set out to anoint Jesus' body with spices. And as they're on the way, they ask each other, who's going to roll the stone away for us? Now you would have thought that they would have um, asked that beforehand. <laughs> but sorrow and grief doesn't necessarily help you think properly. But here's what we need to see. They go to the tomb with no expectation of the resurrection in mind. They simply go to anoint Jesus' dead body out of sheer love. But when they arrive, their world is rocked upside down. Verse 4, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. That is, they were literally terrified. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The most important words ever to be spoken in human history were spoken to three women. He is risen. The first thought that probably entered these ladies' minds when they saw that the stone had been rolled away was that someone had taken the body of Jesus. But when they enter that tomb, they encounter an angel, and they're overcome with dread and terror. But the angel reassures them that there's no need to be afraid, and he affirms the reason why they're there. You're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Now that statement is important because that statement is rooting Jesus' life in history. This is not some mythology. This is about a, about a man who was from Nazareth and who was crucified. But he is no longer dead. He is risen. He's not here anymore. Come and see the place where they laid him. I think the angel is inviting us to come and see the place where they laid him. Can you imagine the look on these women's faces? Can you imagine what their hearts were feeling in this moment? The scriptures claim and the confession of the church claims that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. As the Nicene Creed declares, on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. These women saw this. They encountered this. They experienced this. But what does this all mean? What does Jesus rising from the dead mean? Well, there's a lot of things that the resurrection of Jesus means. For one, 
Christianity stands or falls on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead in history. The truthfulness of Christianity rests upon whether or not Christ rose from the dead. If he didn't rise, Christianity is a complete lie and is, a worthless, and is worthless to us. That's what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15. But here in Mark, I think there are two main ideas that Mark wants us to understand and believe. The first is this. Jesus rising from the dead is the evidence that he is indeed the Son of God. Remember, Mark's gospel begins with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it ends with the Gentile centurion looking upon the crucified Jesus and confessing, truly this man was the Son of God. It was the crucified Jesus that caused the centurion to confess, truly this man was the Son of God. But it's the resurrection of Jesus that affirms the centurion's confession as true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the centurion's confession was a false confession. And the mockers were right. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then the mockers were wrong, and the centurion's confession was true and is true. Jesus truly is the Son of God. See, the centurion's confession rests upon the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we can have the confidence that the centurion's confession is indeed true. This man truly was the Son of God. This is precisely what Paul articulates in the beginning of Romans where he speaks about the gospel that he's been entrusted to, and this is what he says, Romans 1, 1-4, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is, the Old Testament promised this gospel of God, this good news of God. And then he says, what's the subject? Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And then he says this, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's declaration to the world that the one who did die on that cross is indeed the Son of God. See, the religious leaders and the mocking crowds wanted Jesus to prove that he was the Son of God by saving himself from death, come down from the cross. But Jesus proved he was the Son of God by conquering death through his resurrection. This moment in Mark's gospel, it confronts each of us. Will you believe Jesus is the Son of God and follow him, or will you disregard him? But there is one thing you will not be able to do, and that is when you stand before God, you will not be able to say you did not know. The resurrection is the affirmation 
that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Also, the resurrection means that hope has been restored. Hope has been restored. Saturday was a day of complete hopelessness for the apostles and disciples of Jesus. Jesus' death was like an avalanche crushing everything they loved and held dear. Hopelessness, despair, death, sin defined Saturday. But Sunday arrives and all of that changes. Hopelessness is replaced with hope. Despair is replaced with joy. Sin is replaced with righteousness. Death is replaced with resurrection life. Ray Steadman, in reflecting on the times, said this, Someone has called our present generation Saturday's children, and it is an apt term. Our great cities are, for the most part, teeming with pools of human misery, where people live out their days in a kind of ritual dance toward death with hope or illusion. In the midst of an increasingly godless world, despair grips people's hearts everywhere. Hopelessness and meaningless come crushing in on us from every side. But the resurrection tells us that we don't need to be the children of Saturday, but we can be the children of Sunday. You see, there really are only two kinds of people in this world, or two kinds of children. Saturday's children, or Sunday's children. Saturday's children, death reigns. Sin is not defeated. Hope is at best wishful thinking. Despair and sorrow are the never-ending streams of Saturday. Sunday's children... Death has been conquered and life reigns. Sin has been defeated. It's been trampled underfoot. Hope is surer than the rising of the sun. Joy and peace are the never-ending streams of Sunday. And the question is, are you living on Saturday or are you living on Sunday? Because Jesus rose from the dead, you don't have to live in the misery and hopelessness and death-filled Saturday. You can live instead in the joy and hope and peace and life of Resurrection Sunday. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, understand this. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every time we gather on Sunday for worship, we're declaring to one another and to the world that hopeless Saturday has no hold on us because we are resurrection people. For our Savior is the resurrected King and Messiah, the Son of God. And so Christian, live every day as though it were Sunday. Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. And finally, we see in this passage the restoration and the commissioning of the disciples. The restoration and commissioning of the disciples. It's implied in the final words that the angel gives to the women. Look at verse 7 and 8. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. <clears throat> 
And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that there is far more than what simply happens here. For example, we know that Jesus actually does reveal himself to Mary at the tomb. Mark's gospel ends very abruptly, but it fits within Mark's narrative. Mark's gospel is very abrupt. The narrative is carried by the simple word immediately, immediately. So though we are not given a fuller picture of the resurrection and the events that follow, these last words stated by the angel implies certain truths that the other gospels make explicit. In other words, or in these words, the angel is revealing that Jesus is both going to restore the disciples and also commission the disciples. He tells the ladies to tell the disciples or the apostles to go to Galilee where they will see him. What happens in Galilee? It's in Galilee where Jesus both restores them and commissions them. You see, sometimes we jump to the commissioning, Matthew 28. But we forget that these men, at this moment in time, are weighed down by guilt and shame for abandoning Jesus. Especially the Apostle Peter. But with these simple words, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, there is forgiveness and restoration for the disciples. You see, Jesus had just been abandoned by them, and Peter, of course, denied him. He would have had every right to abandon them in return. He would have had every right to find a new set of apostles. But these words reveal not just that Jesus is the resurrected King and Savior, but also the kind of resurrected King and Savior that he is. He is a resurrected Savior who is full of compassion and mercy and will not abandon his disciples, but instead will restore them. You know what this tells me, brothers and sisters? If you're in Christ, if, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, Jesus will not abandon you in your weakest moment, in your greatest failings. He will not abandon you in your most evil moments. Rather, he will come and he will find you and he will restore you just as he did with the disciples and especially Peter. Not only does he restore the disciples, but he also commissions them to represent him and to be his witnesses in the world. I mean, think about this. He entrusts that responsibility to a bunch of men who abandoned him. And of course, we see that commissioning explicitly in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went where? To Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus commissions his apostles to make disciples. And by extension, the blood-bought church of Jesus, you and I, are commissioned to that same glorious task. Jesus has entrusted that responsibility to his blood-bought church. And his church has both his authority behind her and his presence with her. And here's a good way of putting what our calling is. We're commissioned by Jesus to invite people to stop being Saturday's children and to join us in being Sunday's children, resurrection children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death and that in him we too will be resurrected. We too have the hope of the resurrection. And I pray, Lord, that as your bride, as your church, we would be faithful, faithful to the commission that you have given us to make known to the world that there is Resurrection Sunday and that they are invited to be a part of Resurrection Sunday and that everlasting eternal day where we will be with Christ forever. Help us to be faithful to that calling. Help us not to fear man, but to, be, but to fear you only and to live out our days in serving you and being faithful to you as resurrected Sunday children. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.